You know, speaking of introductions, uh, it's a place I go in South Africa, and they, they have a little contest who can give the most uh, memorable introduction of me. And the last time I was there, um, Dr. Michael Eaton was the other speaker. Now, I doubt that you would know who that is, but he's a very close friend. He died uh, two years ago, and I, I miss him. But uh, the man who in, did the introduction said, well, folks, we have Dr. R.T. Kendall and Dr. Michael Eaton here in this church at the same time. Imagine having these two men. We must take advantage of this. He said, it's my privilege to introduce Dr. R.T. Kendall, one of the great theologians in the world today, filled with the fruits of the Holy... Oh, sorry, that's Michael Eaton. <laughs> and he sat down, and I walked up and had to preach after that. <laughs> Joy to be here. I feel loved, and I'm deeply grateful that this is the seventh year in a row that Charles and John and... Dottie, actually, you tell them who to invite, don't you? They listen to you. Thank you for having me. Now, we, I have a book called The Power of Humility, and T.R. said, if I'd have known you were going to preach on that, I'd have brought that, because uh, there's, a, there's a history, and I thought you might want to know the history. Um, some years ago, I wrote a book on jealousy. Did we bring that? Got four copies. Je three. I wrote a book on jealousy, and I called it The Sin Nobody Talks About. And uh, then I wrote a sequel, and I called it uh, Pride, The Sin Nobody Admits To. And my publisher said, uh, you, you got to change the title. Nobody will buy a book with that title. I said, well what do you want me to call it? They said, the power of humility. I said, I am not going to be writing a book on humility. No way. Uh, so they said, well, we'll see what we can come up with. A month later, they came back and said, all of our agents who've read the book say, you should call the book the power of humility. I said, I cannot dare be seen writing a book like that. And I have a friend in England, Lyndon Bowering is his name, he's a close friend. He's kind of like the James Dobson of England. And uh, I said, Lyndon, because he had read the book, he read the manuscript, I said, they want me to call the book The Power of Humility. What am I going to do? He said, well, first of all, I love the title, and don't worry, R.T., those who know you well will never accuse you of being humble. <laughs> so, so that's it. But we didn't bring it. We don't have any. Oh, well. Um, I'll preach it next year. No, this is... No, I can't preach it next year. I'm going to do it now. Never mind. But uh, so that's the reason for this book. I want to read to you from... Or for this sermon. Luke 14. Gospel of Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. 
lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. So it may be that, uh, and he invited you, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to pass on all that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be clear, simple, and I pray that this will be life-changing. And I pray that this word will bring great honor and glory to your name. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Many years ago, when Ronald Reagan sat in the White House, he had a plaque on the desk in the Oval Office. Um, Years before, Harry Truman had a plaque that said, the book stops here. Ronald Reagan had a plaque, and here's what it said. There is no limit to how far a person can go as long as he doesn't care who gets the credit for it. And I think that's one of the reasons for Ronald Reagan's greatness. And the root of the gospel is that people who get to heaven are those who realize they don't deserve to be there. And all the credit goes to God. They know they've been chosen from the foundation of the world, called by the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus paid the debt on the cross, and we're kept forever. And so we end up in heaven, and we realize we don't deserve to be there. We had done nothing except obey the Holy Spirit. And it's humbling and for that reason, there are those who actually reject the gospel because they want to feel they're doing something to earn it. And as long as you think you can earn your way to salvation, uh, you disqualify yourself. Uh, I might ask this question to anybody here and possibly someone watching. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, and he might, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? I put that question to people wherever I go. Suppose when you came in tonight, you were given a sheet of paper, and you wondered why you have it. 
So I'm going to tell you. I want you to go along with me. Imagine you've got a sheet of paper, and I want you to write down your answer to the question. If you stood before God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? So start writing in your mind. What would you say? And suppose it were the real thing, and it's a no joke, and you're actually having to stand before God. By the way, you will. There'll be nobody to answer for you, nobody to coach you and whisper the answer, and you're having to say the right answer, and you give the wrong answer. That means you go elsewhere. I'm sorry, but it's to hell. It's heaven or hell, the end of every life. And so you're having to say, why God should let you in? What would you say? I'll tell you what, they'll pass your sheets of paper to the end of the row, and we'll have somebody pick them up. And now I've got a couple hundred or more sheets of paper. And uh, would you like to hear some of the answers? Uh, if this were a typical church? Uh, here's an answer who says, uh, I've tried to live a good life. And I would say to you, well, whoever you are, I believe you, but you're lost. Here's another one. Uh, I was brought up in a Christian home. Another says that. I would say to you, well, that means you had a head start, but that won't save you. Well, here's another. I was baptized. I've been baptized, and I'll surely go to heaven. No, I'm sorry. You're lost. Here's another. I was baptized by a Baptist preacher. I would have to say to you, you're lost as a goose. <laughs> Here's another who says, well, I've done my very, very best. And I have to say, I'm sorry, but you're lost. You say, well, how could I? If I've done my best, what more can I do? You see, this is why God sent his son into the world. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do. He kept the law for us. Uh, he said at the early part of his ministry, I've come to fulfill the law. Uh, the man who put me in Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said the most stupendous statement that Jesus ever made is when he said, I've come to fulfill the law. Nobody had ever done that before. So Jesus kept the law for you. Then he died for you. And he did for you what you cannot do, because even at your best, you come short of the glory of God. And so, humility is required for you to admit you're a sinner, you're lost, you haven't kept the law, but Jesus paid your debt. Well, that, in a word, is the gospel. And so, when we get to heaven, we relinquish all personal credit and give all the glory to God. So the question is, are you willing not to get the credit for what you do? Now, here's the encouraging thing. God can use people who have not conquered pride. Uh, I think I would suggest all of you people who have conquered pride, would you want to stand? Charles, I thought you'd stand. <laughs> you no, know, Dottie says no chance. <laughs> Here's proof. Take Elijah. Elijah was a very proud man. 
and yet God used him. Uh, it's, it's thrilling to know that God uses people, frail children of dust. And uh, pride makes me want to, to preach a good sermon, but I always want to do better than I do. And so there's a sense in which God uses pride. In fact, Martin Luther used to say, God uses sex to drive a man to marriage, ambition to drive a man to service, fear to drive a man to faith. So God can use pride because after all, that's why we comb our hair, that's why we want to look decent. But there's a pride that competes with the honor and glory of God. One of the first and true signs of humility is a sense of sin. You're aware that you come short of the glory of God. I happen to have been brought up in a denomination where they taught and teach that you can live above sin. And I used to ask my pastor back in Ashland, Kentucky, why do we have the petition and the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, if we're going to reach the place that we don't need to pray that? And then I read one, John, uh, one day that 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so it's the Holy Spirit that makes you aware that you are a sinner. And Isaiah the prophet saw the glory of God. He saw the cherubim, the seraphim, cried one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this prophet who had been prophesying for years said, woe is me, I am undone. I don't know if you recall, some years ago, there was a revival, or it was reported to be a revival, in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, it was after we had uh, retired, and, and we first went to Florida, they came, and we live now in Nashville. And I began to get letters and phone calls and said, have you heard about the great revival in Florida? I said, what do you mean? Oh, it's last day ministries. Uh, this is it before the second coming. I said, well, how can I find out more? Oh, you can watch it on television every night. So I started watching it. Every night that I was in Nashville, I watched it, and I thought, just a minute. Here was a man who had word of knowledge. He would tell people what was wrong with them, pain in your right side, and he would say, bam, and they'd fall backwards. And everybody was being excited about this. It's the power of God. We've never seen anything like it. And I thought, well, if this is really of God, I, I, want to, I want to be in on it. But then I began to feel there was something not right. And I was asked to write an article in a Christian magazine of what I thought of the Lakeland Revival. They had 10 writers. Nine were for it. I alone said, it's not of God. And people criticized me. Said, R.T., how can you dare say it's not of God? I said, it's not. Well, it turns out that uh, suddenly this revival is closed down. And um, because the, the man who was the evangelist had been living with his secretary 
in a trailer right behind the auditorium where the revival took place. The whole time the revival was going on, and they, embarrassingly, they stopped it all. And then they came to me and said, well, R.T., you were right. I said, wait a minute. Why did it take his immorality? Couldn't you tell? And we all ought to have a sense of discernment to know truth from error. And if you do not see yourself as a sinner, there's something wrong. Sometimes the most evil people in the world don't see anything wrong with them. Listen to this quote. I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. Adolf Hitler. And you may recall some years ago, there was a man in California that held an 11-year-old girl in a shack in his backyard for several years. And when they found him, he was giving out Christian tracts on the street. But he saw nothing wrong with what he did. Now, there's an old Puritan saying, the sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. so. And uh, you remember the days when you watched Jack Benny? He used to say, modesty is my greatest quality. Well, if we're not enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we can never see anything wrong in us. Uh, there was a, a well-known preacher in Britain. Uh, his name was John Stott, godly man. I used to have a meal with him at least once a year. He died about three years ago. And he made an amazing statement just before I went out the door, the last time I was with him. He said, R.T., if you really knew me, you would spit in my face. And I thought, that shows. Here's a man is seen as godly, and he was. But he was conscious of his own weakness and fault. The closer we get to God, the more we'll realize this. It's an interesting paradox that the greatest saints in church history always saw themselves as the greatest sinners. Well, the reason God can use us if we are devoid of self-righteousness. I just remembered a story. When we were at Westminster Chapel, we were just a, a four-minute walk from our apartment to the chapel. And um, one Sunday morning, Louise and I got into an argument. I think we'd say in Kentucky, it was a dandy. Uh, she was horrible. <laughs> and I, so angry, I slammed the door, left the apartment about 10.30, and I go down the elevator, walk over to the chapel, and then at one minute till 11, I'm on the platform, and I'm bowing my head, thinking about all these people out here. They think what a godly, humble man I am. And then I thought, Lord, how can you use me today? What I have done was so bad. And I wanted to apologize to Louise, but it was too late. 
And then at 11 o'clock, we start the service, and she's not in her place. And uh, I keep wondering, is she not coming to church today? Well, she finally came in about 15 minutes late. And I thought, if I could only say to her, I'm sorry. But she wouldn't even look at me. And it was a horrible feeling. And then I wanted to give a note to one of the deacons to give to Louise, but I thought, well, that deacon will read the note, and I don't want him to know that we had a big fight before the service. And all I could do is pray and say, Lord, I don't see how you can use me today. I have been so bad, and I'm so sorry. I don't see how you can use me. You know what? Strange as this may seem, I preached that morning with more power than I'd had in years. Why? I can tell you why. There was not one ounce of self-righteousness in me. I felt so unworthy. And that was the time that God could use me. Because I just felt I shouldn't even be here. And God did use me. And I think about Simon Peter. Six weeks before the day of Pentecost, when he preached the first sermon, the inaugural sermon of the church, six weeks before, he denied knowing the Lord. And you think, why would God use him? He's the most unworthy man. But you see, that's the way God is. For those who are aware that they are unworthy, God says, I can use you. That's the people that get saved, and we never reach a place that we can say, oh, now I know God's going to use me because I've been on a 40-day fast, or I've been praying more than ever. Look, we must come to the place that we're aware. It is by the grace of God that God can use us at all. Well, Jesus said when you are invited to a banquet, uh, don't take the... Uh, seated at, at the head table because they might come to you and say, oh, sorry, uh, this has been reserved for somebody else. He said, take the lowest seat. Maybe you'll be exalted. And then come those words. For everyone who will exalt himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so, what's a sign of taking the lowest seat? Well, part of the sign is, don't brag on yourself, let someone else do it. That's what Proverbs chapter uh, 27 verse 2 says. I'll tell you a secret about every preacher that you may not know. It's true of Charles and it's true of John, but they may not tell you this. But you want me to tell you what is true of every preacher in the world? They love a, an affirming word right after they preach. They do. They don't want criticism right after they preach. They need to know that they did a good job. I know many preachers. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he waited for you to say, was it okay? I, I can name other people. It's true with every single preacher remember preaching some 25, 27 years ago 
in a town in the south of England called Bournemouth. Uh, that there was a, an, uh, an organization called Easter People. And I was invited to be their annual speaker. And I'd ha- I don't remember what I preached on, but there was a couple thousand people there. And I wanted to preach a good sermon. And when I sat down, I was waiting for maybe the person who introduced me or somebody just to say, thank you. It's what we wanted, or good job. Or, and I just sat there and no one said a word. And finally, everybody got up and left. And this is embarrassing to tell you this, but I, <laughs> I stayed around for about 10 minutes waiting for somebody to say that it was okay. And uh, they started turning off the lights, people going home. Well, I thought nobody's going to say a word, so I get in the car, drive back to London, two-hour drive, and I say, Lord, what, what say you? How did I do? And it was total silence, nothing. Well, I forgot about it after a day or two, but not really. I always wondered. A year ago, preaching in an Anglican church in North London. As I'm walking out the door, a lady taps my elbow, and she said, could I have a word with you? I said, sure. She said, I've been wanting to talk to you for years. Said, you probably won't remember this, but 25 years ago, there's an Easter people gathering in Bournemouth, and you preach. Oh, I said, I remember that very well. She says, you do. I said, yes. Well, she said, what I want to tell you is I was saved that night. And on a night, I had no idea what I was doing, whether I did it well. It shows that sometimes God withholds compliments from us to teach us a lesson. Well, now, Jesus, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is an interesting phrase. The King James says justified by the Spirit, but all modern versions say vindicated by the Spirit. What's that mean? It means that Jesus got his vindication not from people, but from his heavenly Father. And so he heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Holy Spirit just assured him. You see, Jesus didn't need uh, compliments. Uh, Can you imagine that after he finished the Sermon on the Mount, you reckon he could call up uh, Peter and John and say, "Uh, hey guys, how did I do? Was that a pretty good sermon or or not? Uh, Imagine Jesus doing that. He wouldn't need to because his father said, you're okay. And to be vindicated by the Spirit means that you don't really lean on praise of people, but the Holy Spirit witnesses that you're honoring Him. Now, there are two kinds of vindication. One is external, when people clear your name. Uh, You love it when you've been falsely accused and God Uh, does something that will clear your name. But then there's internal vindication when God approves of you by the Spirit. 
Uh, so that on Easter morning, what did Jesus do? Did he go up and knock on the door of Herod? And he says, hi, surprise. Or go to Pontius Pilate's house and say, it's me. No, he revealed himself only to his disciples. And to this very day, his vindication is not because the world sees it, who he was, he's still having an internal vindication because the family affirm him. And we're the ones who confess in advance what everybody will see one day when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's very important that we get our vindication, not because of what people say, weak though we are, we, we are, but to be more like Jesus, who got his approval from the Father. And vindication by the Spirit means that you are living for an audience of one. So I'm not sure that I've arrived at this. In fact, my life verse is John 5:44. How can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? This has been my life verse, but I, I fall short of it all the time. But Jesus was perfect. And here's the thing. A way to get to know what pleases God is when you realize that God wants the glory, but he also loves gratitude. Um, I was preaching through the book of Philippians years ago uh, in 1985 and 1986. When we came to Philippians chapter 6, uh, uh, sorry, chapter, not 6 chapters, Philippians only 4. When we came to chapter 4, verse 6, here's what Paul said. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Do you know something happened to me that day that has, had never happened before or hasn't happened since? I wish it would. But in the middle of my sermon, when I came to that phrase, put your prayer and supplication to God, with thanksgiving... It was as though my whole life was before me. And the Holy Spirit began to show one thing after another where God had been so good to me. And I had not said thank you. And I felt awful. I said, Lord, help me to get this sermon over with. And I'll go into my study and I'll lock the door and I'll repent. And that's exactly what I did. And as I prayed. God kept it up. And he showed me one thing after another, the things he had done for me. And, I, and he said, look, are you thankful? I said, of course, you know I'm thankful. He said, but you didn't tell me. And he would show me another thing. Do you appreciate that? I said, well, yes, Lord, you know I'm thankful. He said, you didn't tell me. And it so convicted me that I decided that day and that's in 1986, many years ago, 
that the rest of my life I would be a thankful man and I keep a journal it's just something I do I could tell you where I was on November 2nd 1987 at 2 o'clock in the afternoon it's just something I do and I made a vow that day that I would go through my journal of the day before and thank the Lord for every little thing he did uh, and I've kept it up I did it today I thanked him yesterday uh, for traveling mercies from Nashville uh, meeting John and we went to this barbecue place and it was good you know there's a big uh, rivalry between Tennessee and Texas barbecue as to which is the best I'm not telling <laughs> but it was a sweet fellowship and I thanked you for, for every little thing two years ago Mayo Clinic probably the most respected medical institution in America and certainly one of the most respected came out with a bulletin here's what it said thankful people live longer they're not using Jesus the Bible they're going by statistics medically approved thankful people live longer and I would suggest that you consider this I challenge you make it a, a promise a principle that before you go to bed at night you thank the Lord for at least three things of that day and you start going through it there'll be more than that here's what I've found out God loves gratitude God hates ingratitude you see he notices it when you forget to thank him Jesus healed ten lepers one came back and said thank you and Jesus immediate comment was where are the nine I healed ten that lets you know as I saw that day it taught me and I felt ashamed and I would urge you what it will do for your life you have no idea you see the curse of our generation is where people feel entitled they feel that God owes them something and they're always complaining but the power of humility is when his power takes over and we realize how unworthy we are you know one day God said to Moses who his, his people were complaining. And God said, Moses, you know, that group you've got following you, they're a sorry lot. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill them and start all over with you. You and I start with a new nation. You know, there was a time in my ministry at Westminster Chapel, if God did, had said to me, RT, those, you got a bunch of deacons that are giving you a hard time. I'm just going to destroy them. I think I might say, Jesus, thank you. Oh, I'm afraid I might. But you know what Moses said? He said, no, you can't do that, Lord. Your name is at stake. Your honor. What are they going to say back in Egypt? Forgive them. You see, this is the thing that God wants us 
to be humbly thankful and realize he's a God of glory and he will not give his glory to another. And so that's my word for you this year. Do you know the first thing you should ask God for when you pray? The very first thing, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us come boldly unto the throne of the grace that we may obtain mercy. You say, well, surely, R.T., you don't ask for mercy. We did that when we got saved. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, let the holiest person here, whoever you might be, know these words. You never outgrow asking for mercy. And so when you ask for mercy, you've got no bargaining power. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian. When you come to God, you ask for mercy. When's the last time you asked for mercy? You rush in and say, God, do this, do this. I close with the story that Louise and I will never forget years ago, driving in Miami Beach on Collins Avenue. There are those hotels right on the ocean, beautiful. And one evening, we were driving down Collins Avenue, I would say 35 miles per hour, came to a traffic light. It was green. Before I knew it, it turned yellow, and then turned red. And I was going 35 miles per hour. I went on through, and in my rearview mirror was a blue light going off and on, off and on. And I knew what I had done. So I get out of the car, and I go back to the policeman, and I said, please don't give me a ticket. He said, why? Well, I'd appreciate it for one thing. He said, sir, you went right through that red light. You went right through that red light, and you're asking me not to give you a ticket. Give me one reason. Well, I said, I think where we live, the light stays yellow just a little longer than it did here. And we were going 35 miles per hour. He said, the speed limit is 25. And now he could arrest me for something he hadn't even stopped me for. And I thought, I'd better quit now. I said, please don't give me a ticket. He gave me my driver's license back. He said, go on. I'll never forget how I felt. And that's the way it is. We come to God. We've got to realize who we are and who he is. And this God of the Bible who recognizes when we, instead of inflating our egos, or trying to impress people, who answers prayer, he's never too late. He's never too early. He's always just on time. Try mercy and try gratitude. Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this word, apply this word by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.